Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to another software-defined episode of Software Gone Wild. As usual, Chris Young and David G, in purely alphabetical order, are with me to keep me honest. Hi, Chris. Hi, David. How are you doing? Alphabetical order? Is that you, Chris? Last name or first name? I think we're doing fine. If you have time to discuss whether alphabetical order is by first or last name, you must be bored. Anyway, moving on, our guest today is Max Rotenkolber. Welcome. Hi. He did one of those crazy things that people do when they think that they need high-speed packet processing. You might remember that we started this long saga of high-speed packet processing with that thing called the Snap Switch. And then we did a podcast on how Snap Switch can be used in OpenStack. And then we had someone who built Layer 2 VPN over IPv6, because why not, with Snap Switch. And then we had a lady who managed to do, I think, 10 gig or even 20 gig of V4 over V6 NCAP, DCAP per CPU core with SnapSwitch and some crazy use of level one and level two caches in the CPU to keep all the translation tables hot. And finally, we had Marcel Wigat, who wrote the control plane for that stuff running on VMX, if I remember correctly. So you can find all that on previous episodes of Software Gone Wild. Just go to ipspace.net slash podcast and start exploring. And today we have Max Rotenkolmer who decided to implement IPsec on top of SnapSwitch. Let's start first with you, Max. What are you doing? How did you get into networking? And why do you think IPsec matters? Yeah, so I got into networking through Snap, actually. My first commit was in June 2014. And I've been an active contributor and maintainer since then. Oh, wow. You're, you must be like sequence number three or so, right? I think double digits, but yeah, kind of early on then. I've been working on it for quite a while already. Well, why do I think IPsec matters? Well, good question. I didn't actually decide to implement the IPsec stuff. That was done back then for customer demand, I think. And when I already had that done, well, done in the sense as done as you can be, right? And then I decided it's a shame that you don't use this for more stuff. So I decided, hey, why not do an IPsec-based uh, VPN endpoint in Snap? Because I've uh, talked to friends of mine who are administering university networks, and they kind of like had these pain stories with the appliances they use for that, and how it didn't really fit into their stuff. So I thought, well, you could do something really simple about that. And yeah, that's where I ended up with this, basically. At the end of last year, I've applied to an LNET for a grant to work on this, and they've been kind enough to allow me that opportunity. And yeah, fast forward, now I'm here. I've seen on your website, and we'll include it in the show notes, that you're an independent freelance programmer, right? That's correct. Then what do you do when you're not doing IPsec on Snap? To be honest, other clients have fallen a bit on the wayside due to this. But yeah, usually I'm just consulting here and there whatever comes up. Nice. And NLNet is the Dutch academic network, correct? Right. So they had an academic network like way back when the internet started. Mm -hmm. And at some point they sold off the infrastructure, basically. The proceeds from that went into a fund 
that's now managed by, I'm not sure, basically the Internet Foundation, and they uh, fund open source networking stuff. Ah, so they are like angel investors for open source. Yeah, in a way. Wow. I mean, there's not really investment since they don't get any return on that or even expect that. But it's kind of like all the good of their hearts. It's really a nice organization. Maybe that's a nice term. Your software community angels. Awesome. Out of all the possible things you could do with SnapSwitch, you decided to go for IPsec. Why exactly? There's an RFC, right? I mean, that's the one thing. Then again, there's this interesting aspect where Snap basically benefits a lot from special purpose CPU instructions on modern CPUs. IPsec or encryption in general is also an area where this applies. So we can, there are special AES instructions and that's basically why you can even do encryption decryption at high rates on a general purpose CPU. Usually people buy these specific cards to do just that. And yeah, I'm hoping that can move more and more stuff to general purpose CPUs. And it was kind of like an um, experiment also in a way to take this to the next level. Okay, so when you talk about high performance, what is that? How much AES can you do on an Intel core per second? It depends obviously on the clock rate. So we kind of like higher clock rates are better. The more AES instructions you can do, the better. Generally, so the current goal for Vita, which is what the project stuff, is to do like this... uh, conservative goal is to do 10 gig iMix very, very comfortably with like, I don't know, four cores or something. That's pretty much without any scaling strategy. I'm still kind of like trying to keep the story open-ended for that because I haven't really decided where to go there. But I'm expecting that you should be reasonably able to do 40 gig and maybe in a few years, 100. How dependent is that on key length? So do you see kind of linear increases and decreases or is it a bit more complex than that? I actually haven't tried, to be honest. So I don't have any specific numbers on that. But yeah, it's kind of, key length is kind of linear. Maybe not linear, but it's pretty much, you get an extra cost out of that per packet. So have you got a standard key size at the moment then that you just run everything with? Is it at a guess, so 128 maybe? Right, exactly. Okay. And you were very careful and what you told us, so you probably never worked in marketing. And you said, at iMix which means the right distribution of small and large packets. So I'm guessing that the encryption process really doesn't matter that much on the packet size, but the overhead of dealing with the packets would bring down the performance if you have to deal with many small packets. Or am I totally wrong? No, it's actually encryption bound, decryption bound, but pretty much the CPUs kind of like when they have a certain amount of time to just spend on a specific task because it catches heat up and the specific subsystem in the CPU that's doing the AES instructions kind of is happy for a while. And basically, you get the best speeds for encryption decryption on current CPUs if you decrypt like 9,000 byte packets or encrypt 9,000 byte packets. And you get like the, I don't know, up to 30 gigabits throughput per core, which is like great. But once you start chopping that down into smaller packets and you might have to context switch between encryption and decryption contexts because you have multiple security associations, then you basically have to flush the caches every time in between. And so it's actually much more expensive to decrypt 60-byte packets than it is to decrypt 1,500-byte packets. And that's all because you have to switch contexts and the caches get cold again and you have to repopulate them. Right, yeah. So you have this IPsec implementation in a Snap, and it runs on a generic x86 CPU at pretty high rates. What can you do with that? 
Well, I think the most basic example would be to if you have a university network and you have maybe an offsite location, you want to connect those over a line that you don't control and you want to assure some basic confidentiality and integrity for your traffic, then you might deploy that very cheaply. So you would use generic x86 boxes as VPN concentrator boxes. Right. I'm just um, chewing on an idea, well, not an idea, maybe a thought. So from my security days, cough quite a while ago, two concepts always stood out. So it was either transport-based or tunnel-based. But I guess when you're doing it at this level with Snap, I mean, is that concept still relevant? Because what you're doing is probably just identifying packets to encrypt and the ones that matter encrypted or decrypted and the ones that don't aren't. So do you still think about it in that way or is it more a case of classifying packets to encrypt and decrypt? No, we originally implemented transport mode, which was intended for some kind of NFV style thing, think containers or VMs or something like that, where it's like end-to-end from VM to VM. But for Vita, the thing I'm currently working on is basically tunnel mode, and it's just kind of like a dump pipe where you just every traffic that comes in gets tunneled to one of the end, like one of the next stops, basically fully encrypted. Okay, cool. So, uh, so yeah, so the concept still stands, and so that's interesting. Yeah, you still need tunnel mode for VPNs because the inside IP addresses, your private IP addresses, are not routable when you send them out to the wild west of the internet. Oh, but, sure. Yeah, I was. Kind of think about this from a, I guess, from a messed up programming point of view and just doing header rewrites and things, you know, manipulating data structures versus networking concepts. But it's, you know, it's interesting stuff. Well, you know, in the end, it's still networking. We still have to adhere to the laws of physics, even though it's software defined. <laughs> yep. Okay, so coming back to Vita, it's a VPN concentrator that I could use to build side to side VPNs. Usually, that thing would have to be configured in some way, and then you would have to usually establish security associations with Ike, the exchange to keys, and so on. And then you would start encrypting traffic. So how do you do that in your case? What's the configuration process? So I'm benefiting here from other contributors to Snap. Egalia have been very helpful in many ways, but one thing that I developed is a pretty complete Yang stack, which I think also has a netconf interface bridge. So what we try to do nowadays is to model the applications uh, like in the Yang model and configure it via these Yang RPCs. So you have a model of both the configuration and the state, like various performance counters, packet counters, traffic counters, stuff like that, or the active configurations or keys in my case that you can query and set. It's given a standard interface. Ah, so you're just defining a Yang data model and you use their Yang slash netconf implementation and then they do their stuff and your data structures just happen to be just right. Well, so there's multiple approaches. Usually what we do is we do a native model that basically matches our application. And if you then later on decide, hey, I want to use a standard model to interface with that, you kind of like implement a translator. So what you're doing is translating updates to a specific model either to your native model or from your native model to your actual application. Uh, Because Chris will not ask this question, I will. Do you have streaming telemetry? I suppose not, but it should be very easily to be implemented. I mean, everything is there. You just kind of like have to do the client, I suppose. Yeah, you just have to write something that will every now and then take a snapshot and send a UDP packet to someone. Yeah. But you now explain that way it doesn't sound sexy enough. Well, we're open for anyone who's interested to 
supply some funding, I would love to work on that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple questions for the Yang model. Are you, and I was, I'm searching this in the background, are you using the Yang data model for IPsec, the IETF, or are you doing something more proprietary? But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah provided. No, I'm not there yet using the standard models for many reasons. So currently that's like a very simple native model and right. So either if I go IPsec all the way, I would then add the translation layer to translate that back to that standard model. Or maybe things go in a different direction altogether and maybe we're going to implement a different standard. Who knows? So I'm saying that because one of my main obsessions in working on this has been that the general architecture is very generic for every application that kind of like encrypts packets, decrypts packets, sends them to various routes, stuff like that. And so one of my ideas has been, hey, maybe just dump the IPsec stuff because it's nice, but it's not the only thing in the world. And then there's stuff like, I don't know, WireGuard happening right now. So porting the, the whole thing to another protocol isn't that much work, actually. So I'm thinking, yeah, along those lines as well. So you're effectively working on the encryption decryption core of the whole thing, let's put it this way. And you have a few forwarding tables saying, which would be like the old crypto maps in Cisco iOS saying, this prefix goes to this tunnel endpoint, this prefix goes to this tunnel endpoint, this prefix goes to this tunnel endpoint, and you have different keys for every endpoint. How far off am I? Yeah, so I mean, the encryption core thing is actually the smallest part. I think it clocks, the whole IPsec stuff that we have clocks at 1,500 lines of code. So it's actually not that much. So the rest of beta-specific stuff is like about twice that much. And it's, I think the most stuff is about doing the routing, right? Doing the lookup, which where to send the packets to based on the destination address and doing stuff like how do I handle ICMP through a tunnel? Do I just like throw it away or do I actually route them through and listen to encapsulated ICMP messages? How do I handle the time-to-live fields? Stuff like that. Oh, all that stuff. So does trace route work through your tunnel? Yes, it does. And then like in a fully transparent matter way. Okay, so does your gateway appear as two hops, the ingress and the egress gateway, when you do trace route, or are they totally hidden and they look like a bump in the wire? They appear as two hops. So I've done some research on that, and I think I found no case online of people saying, hey, I did a trace route through my VPN and saw them as hops. Either you don't have any ICMP at all, or it's just kind of like a black hole thing where you go in and come out, but you don't really know what happens in between. And for some reason, I thought, no, I have to implement this differently. I want to see the hops, and I want to be able to ping the thing from both sides on both addresses, stuff like that. Yeah, so I went the extra mile and did that. And you did the right thing, and we are grateful that at least someone got it right. That's nice to hear. Thanks. <laughs> I, I'm just shocked, because that makes sense. Like, providing that visibility, that just we just don't see that very often. Yeah, I thought about that a while, because it's actually tricky. The kind of core question is, what happens if you receive an, an, a tunneled ICMP packet that's destined to the endpoint? So you decrypt it, and then you would usually send it off to the internal network, right? But since it's destined to you, you process it as an ICMP message, and what do you do? You have to encrypt it to the sender, right, and send it back, the response. So okay. you have kind of like a loop in there that actually complicates your data flow a bit. It's like the only case where you need that kind of like loopback behavior in a way. 
So I totally see why a lot of people thought, well, no, let's not do that. Let's just keep it simple and not do that. But I think in Snap, it was also kind of straightforward to implement because the way we develop applications are kind of like, it's very suitable to do, do these extra, oh, I add a link there, I add a link there. Like doing these topologies in Snap is kind of comes natural. Yeah, and once you have this hairpinning functionality, you can also start building hub-and-spoke VPNs. So you don't need a full mesh if the customer doesn't want to set that up or something. Right, I mean, that's a, another thing that I'm kind of proud about is the whole thing is very modular. So I'm seeing this also in a way as a proof of concept still. And I think it's very amenable to any sorts of requirements on your crazy ideas you might have. So I'm, I'm very confident in being able to adapt this to different protocols completely different architecture sets. Everything is really reusable and you can use every component individually. So effectively, you have the building blocks and you have this high-speed AES engine. And I was looking through your blog post and we'll also include that in the show notes where you explained how that thing is written in assembly language for maximum efficiency. And now whether it uses IPsec encapsulation or something else, it really doesn't matter because that's just a small bit of the code, right? Right. And I mean, that's also not the code that I'm going to really write myself. There's usually going to pick some vetted implementation of a cipher that's probably maybe even supplied by your CPU vendor because they want their CPUs to be to perform well on that stuff. And you basically use that and just interface it with it. So I guess that's what you did for the AES code that you use. Yes, the AES code that we use is based on a reference implementation by Intel, which basically showcases their new CPU capabilities. It's optimized for AVX2 and the AES instruction extension that they added. And a cool guy named Peter Corley rewrote that using a dynamic assembler that's based on Lua. And so what he basically did is remove a lot of the redundancy. So assembly programs tend to be very redundant and repetitive, like not redundant, repetitive is the right word. And so using a dynamic assembler, he kind of condensed that, made it more readable more approachable. And that's what we're using right now. Right. I didn't touch the machine code for probably 30 years, but what is dynamic assembly? It's basically a program that writes your assembly program. Okay. I'm out of here. So instead of writing the assembly directly, you write like, yeah, you write a loop that says, hey, to emit these instructions based on this pattern. So maybe I'm being stupid here. What's the difference between that and a compiler? The difference is that basically you're writing the compiler <laughs> just for your program. So if I go back to my microcontroller days, I'd probably write in C or something, and that would generate, you know, assembly code um, for super, you know, cheap MCUs. And I kind of see some, you know, synonyms with that, but maybe instead of embedded C, it's Lua. Yeah, in a sense. But it doesn't translate Lua to assembly. You basically write assembly instructions you want to emit, mm-hmm. but you can write like a Lua for loop that says for the key length, emit this instruction this many times, and then do some other stuff. You're writing a program that basically emits the instructions to be like, that make up the program in the end. So you're doing loop unrolling the smart way. Right. Like a macro language almost. I think I kind of understand now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Macro language is a good good analogy. That's a good analogy, a macro language, yeah. Cool. Okay, for people who are listening and are now completely lost, The trick is that if you have loops in your assembly code, your program runs slower because every time you do a loop, you lose the pipeline of commands executed. 
So the usual trick to increase performance is to just put multiple copies of the same code in sequence so that everything is pipelined and fast. And obviously doing this the copy-paste way is, you know, error-prone and messy. So what these guys did is they just automated copy-paste. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, so I, I got it. That's good. Anyway, one of my security friends is always keen on telling me how everything everyone develops is crap because they messed up key exchange. So how do you guys do key exchange? Yeah, I mean, I generally agree that's absolutely the most tricky part. So in order to understand what I'm dealing with, I actually did the crazy thing and implemented the whole key exchange thing from scratch just to give like an idea. Like maybe if I can see how that stuff works, then I might be more able to say implement IKE. I think it's possible to do right. So I think there's some examples like WireGuard is pretty well received currently. And nowadays we also have nice things like these protocol frameworks. There's like the thing called the noise protocol framework where you can reuse basically a language or a family of protocols and pick kind of like out of their vocabulary, pick what you need, satisfy your requirements. And you can go a long way without repeating every little mistake along the way. So yeah, there's like, it's doable, but it's really tough. That's true. So I think um, to actually write something yourself and make that production ready, you have to invest a lot of auditing and testing in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the alternative would be to just use something that's already well tested, I suppose. So yeah, I have this, say, experimental key exchange implementation in Vita that I would personally trust as far as I can throw right now. <laughs> so this is, I would say, a work in progress. And alternatively, you could, say, use the strong SWAN IKE or whatever you have and have that configure your security associations and then just use Vita as a pure data plane. Ah, so you could use an external mechanism for key exchange and then just download the key into your data plane and you're good. Right. Basically, you would issue two netconf RPCs, create a route, create a security association, and then Vita would make it happen. So you decided to implement your own key exchange because why not? And let's learn something while doing that. But if someone is really paranoid about the quality of key exchange implementation, they could use some reference implementation and then from there go and configure your data plane. Yes. I kind of was thinking about maybe implement a subset of IKE, but since the IKE RFC is really long, it's a really big and grown grown standard, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that at all without any prior experience and that like with that kind of stuff. So yeah, I decided to start it simple, do something really really straightforward with very few options, and see how that goes, and basically use the experience gained from that to maybe implement a real protocol that's used by others and interoperable as well. That's where we are right now. Out of curiosity, what cryptographic protocol do you use for the key exchange? So I've basically copied the design from Colin Percival, the author of Tarsnap, which some of you might know, and adapted that to primitives provided by Lipsodium. So another cool thing about information security scene right now is that there's uh, these frameworks, Lipsodium, that's a fork of Salt, Lipsalt, I think, was the original thing, which I think is developed by DJB, yeah. And that's a library that's very well tested and used by many people and basically provides cryptographic primitives that you can reuse. So yeah, I took that design from S5D, 
key exchange design, applied the Lipsolium primitives and hooked something up. That's in the end also very similar to IKE in spirit, but not in the specifics. So I have to admit you totally lost me. This is very niche stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's fine. We'll insert the links in the show notes. If anyone wants to know more, go there and spend a week studying it. So coming back to, let's say, more practical networking stuff, how could I use this? Yeah, so the simplest case, again, is uh, use it as an endpoint in your existing networking infrastructure. So you say you already have a router and a firewall in two different locations. You want to connect those locations. So you would tell your router to route this subnet to Vita as the next top, and you had another Vita node on the other location, and the router receiving the packets would then route those encrypted packets to the Vita node that's running in the other location, and you would get decrypted traffic out of the other end. Again, you could do your key exchange externally using, let's say, StrongSwan, and configure Vita using its output, or you could just use the built-in AKE daemon and have it work out of the box. So looking at the documentation, it looks like you propose to use it in like one arm mode sitting at the side of the WAN edge router. Right. One goal just to keep it simple and to not push my stuff or to like push other stuff like routing and stuff onto the operators was uh, to keep it simple and do like one thing, do it well, only do the encryption, decryption part and the some basic routing between which since you might have multiple locations, right? Um, which of the mesh nodes to push it to, forward it to. But other than that, I decided to let your routers that mandatorily already existing uh, do the routing stuff and have a simple kind of like bump in the wire architecture, if you so will. So you don't plan to replace the WAN edge routers or anything? You just want to supply an appliance that can do encryption, decryption sitting next to the router and the router is still doing the regular routing stuff? Yes, that's a basic use case. And you could use the simple static default route for all the private networks pointing to the VPN box and you're done. Right. What about interoperability with existing IPsec implementations? Right. For the key exchange part, if you want to use IKE, you would have to need to do some integration with IKE. Okay. It's simple. The data plane stuff is standard IPsec, standard ESP. So that should just work. Out of curiosity, did you do any interoperability testing with anything existent? Yeah, so what we do is we have an integration test that basically runs our ESP implementation against Linux. So we do test that our ESP implementation can talk to Linux, Linux's ESP implementation. Ah, so in principle, if someone wants to slowly introduce this into their environment, they could use Linux servers as the VPN nodes and slowly replace them with your stuff. Yeah, that should work. Cool. So assuming I'm interested, how could I start testing this stuff? You can really just git clone, and it should be fairly well documented. I guess what you need is suitable hardware, which in the lowest price factor would be an Intel i210 or an i350. Ethernet card, or alternatively, if you want the want actually 10G throughput, then you would get a Intel 52899. I think. Did I get the sequence correct? No idea, but I know which one you have in mind. Yeah, the 10 gig Intel NIC. Yeah, the 10 gig Internet, right? 
Yeah, alternatively, I mean, what we've also been thinking about is that now that everything is going cloud and you might even want your multi-cloud, multi-homed architecture to use that sort of VPN tunneling to add some other interface options, like maybe some AFXTP stuff or something like that. So yeah, thinking about that, there's nothing like that implemented right now, but yeah, it's uh, in our minds. But in theory, if there is a snap device driver for a certain interface, then you should be able to just run on top of that, right? Yes, absolutely. So there, there are different drivers as well. I mean, I've kind of failed to mention them right now. I know there's a solar flare driver. We also have a Mellanox driver in the works that should be usable and I think is used by some people, but I don't think it's just in the mainline tree yet. So there's a Connect X5, I think. These are Manalox 100G NICs that you could also use. They probably have something like Vertio driver, right? Right, yeah. We do have a Vertio driver. I haven't integrated with Vita yet because I didn't really see the use case for that. But yeah, absolutely. Oh, I want to run it in my background box. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was kind of like the original use case for the IPsec stuff in Snap was that you had uh, QEMU VMs connected to Snap via Vert.io interface and then had basically direct transport mode IPsec between your VMs. So that still exists. It's in Snap NFV. You care about that. And how production-ready is this stuff? Can I put it in my production network or just in my lab? No, I would say, like, if you want to deploy this on a production scale, then you should talk to me and, yeah, we'll have a chat and see about that. And you are, of course, available for freelance consulting. Absolutely. Okay. David, Chris, any more questions? Um, I don't really have any questions. I've just got a boatload of ideas in terms of integration and various control planes. So maybe that will uh, make for a different podcast one day. But I'm just thinking about um, linking everything we've heard today here and how would we maybe do like an overlay key exchange or something. So maybe I'll go and contribute some code. So no questions, more statements and ideas flowing through the podcast. Processing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not often that we get at this level where we're down into the weeds far, far, far. We're beyond the weeds. We're in the roots of the weeds. <laughs> well, I'm very happy that but you're it, interested it, in this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, I, I will be one of the people doing, having to go through the links and, and <laughs> following the rabbit holes. And maybe you just take the code and put it onto your home automation platform. And then you can encrypt the lights in your hotel room. We'll make a drink very securely. Yeah, but we all know IoT is not secure, right? So That's true. It shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, how else would we build botnets otherwise? Absolutely. Okay, so let's wrap this up right here. Max, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? So I have a blog at mr.gy. You can send me an email at max at mr.gy. I also have a Twitter. You can find it if you search for Max Rottenkäuber. And yeah. And you have a nice website and blog on it explaining the cool stuff you do. So I really enjoyed reading that blog post about this project because you were just at the right level of detail to make it highly interesting without losing me all the way through, which was like, wow, thank you. That's great to hear. Thanks. And Chris and David, where can people find you? In alphabetical <laughs> order. <laughs> You've got to stop saying Chris and David. This is a nightmare. <laughs> 
So yeah, at Netman Chris on Twitter and in airplanes this month, I will be uh, out uh, doing a couple of uh, trade shows, those kinds of things. So, ah, it's a trade show season. It is. It is. Yeah, first world problems. Madrid again. Oh no. Did interrupt happen yet? Uh, no, interrupts May, isn't it? Oh, that's true. Yeah, I'm already getting emails from them. You know, use the discount code. Use this. Use that. So I thought it was just around the corner. I think it is just around the corner if you consider that uh, December is a write-off and January is recovering from December. That's true. And David? So you can catch me on Twitter. So I've changed my Twitter handle again. Underscore, uh, so at underscore IP engineer, uh, ipengineer.net for the blog, and very occasionally on this very podcast. It's not that occasionally. You are like part of the regular crew. Well, it's when I can make it. But we podcast occasionally. And you can find all the previous episodes at ipspace.net slash podcast or follow the blog on blog.ipspace.net. Or you can get in touch with me either through the contact link on the website or send me a message on Twitter as at iOS Hint. Thanks for being with us and stay software-defined. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.